This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Cavalry Audio. I'm Carolyn Osorio, and this is my new podcast, The Murder Chronicles. You're listening to episode 22, part 2 of the Night Stalker. Last week, we left off after detailing Richard Ramirez's first believed murder of nine-year-old Mei Lung in April of 1984 in San Francisco. But no one connected her murder to the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez, until much later. Keep in mind, as we move through the Night Stalker's vicious crime spree, which involved multiple police jurisdictions, which would make the case exponentially more difficult to solve. It's also important to note that Richard Ramirez was a killer who's unique in the sense that he was one of the only known serial killers even to this day whose victims didn't fit a particular profile based on race, age, or gender. Basically, anyone was a target. They had these criminal profilers in Quantico, Virginia at the Behavioral Science Unit, and where all profiling was done was predicated on criminal history. Nobody has ever done what Richard was doing, and nobody's been a copycat because nobody knows what he did. Oh, because it was happening in real time? Well, nobody knew then. Pedophile. Look at a pedophile. You're a reporter. Pedophiles, if a little boy's getting molested, they got somebody that's molesting little boys, that guy's going to continue molesting little boys. They do little girls, they're going to continue doing little girls. Mm -hmm. Richard kidnapped little boys, Richard can add sex, and he did it with little girls. The victims in Richard's case range in age from five all the way up to 75. And so, and as serial killers, you have the weapon, their weapon of choice. Richard used different caliber guns, ligature strangulation, manual strangulation, blunt force trauma. He stopped somebody to death with his foot, used a machete. He would blunt force trauma. He used a lamp to break over somebody's head. He was, back then, the FBI qualified these people. They put them in slots. You're either organized or disorganized serial killer. Richard was both. And the organized took his weapons of choice with him to the crime scene. Disorganized use weapons that he found inside the crime scene. Richard did both. Every time he went inside a residence, he had two guns on him. Sometimes he used them, sometimes he didn't. Sometimes he used a knife from inside the house. He used a machete that he took with him. Sometimes he used electrical cord for ligature strangulation. Other times he used manual strangulation. Some he sodomized, some he sexually assaulted, some he didn't. And the men always died because they were the obstacle to get to his lust, which was the female. June 27, 1984, Richard Ramirez wore black down to his socks, shoes, even his baseball cap was black. He wanted to match the night. Richard Ramirez cruised the Glassell Park neighborhood of Los Angeles. He spied a two-story pink apartment building and chose apartment number two. It was on the ground floor. A random choice. He had no idea that 79-year-old Jenny Vincow lived there. Jenny's window was open in the early morning hours. Richard Ramirez slunk up to it. He was wearing gardening gloves. He was high on cocaine, and there was a screen that was giving him some trouble. 
Richard pulled off one of his gloves to get a better grip as he pried the screen out of the window frame. He didn't realize it then. In that one moment to get that screen out, he'd unwittingly left a print behind. In one fluid motion, he maneuvered his tall, thin frame inside Jenny's apartment. Immediately, he was pissed off. He'd come here intent to rob, but once inside, it became clear that there wasn't anything he could fence to make a quick buck. And as he made his way around the small apartment without a sound, in the dark, he could make out the figure of an elderly woman sound asleep in her bedroom. This too infuriated him. He was looking for a young woman to sexually assault. He slid out the six-inch hunting knife he was carrying and stood over the sleeping woman. This was the moment the burglary was salvaged. This was the moment he became sexually aroused because he knew he was going to kill her. The power to take a life had become sexualized. He raised the blade and plunged the entire six inches into Jenny's chest. Her eyes blasted open. She gasped as she took in Richard Ramirez towering above her. Screaming out in pain and fear, she fought for her life as the defensive wounds would bear out later. But she was no match for the intruder. Ramirez stabbed her over and over and over again even slapping his hand over her mouth to muffle her cries. Then he slashed her neck from ear to ear, nearly decapitating her. In that move, life was over for Jenny, but Ramirez was just getting started. For the next hour, he hung around having sex with her dead body between ransacking and tossing the bedroom for anything worth stealing. By lunchtime, Jenny's son had found her and called 911. This was the jurisdiction of LAPD. They were shocked by the grievous injuries to the elderly woman. They looked for any clues, any forensic evidence left behind. The only thing they found was that print. Remember, the Night Stalker had taken off a glove for just a moment to get the screen out of the window. That's where they lifted a print. But unfortunately, since Richard Ramirez's prints weren't in the automated system, he would remain a ghost. Getting away with the murders of Mei Lung and Jenny Vincow continued to empower Richard Ramirez, who felt demons and Satan were protecting him. This belief was like a talisman as he continued to break into people's homes during the night, steal their stuff while they were sleeping, and he continued to get bolder and bolder. On March 17, 1985, Richard Ramirez went out into the night with one thing on his mind. Murder. It was St. Patrick's Day, and he bought a 22 revolver from someone off the street. He stole a car and began to cruise for random victims to kill. On the freeway, 22-year-old Maria Hernandez caught his attention. Pumped up, he followed her gold Camaro. She was on her way home to the Los Angeles suburb of Rosemead. Maria pulled into the garage that was attached to the condo that she shared with her roommate, 34-year-old Dale Okazaki. She had no idea that she'd been followed. Richard Ramirez observed her movements from the street. He was satisfied that she would be his victim. He slid out of the stolen car. Richard always dressed completely in black. He had an ACDC ball cap that was smooshed down on his tangled mess of black hair. He made it to the garage with perfect timing. Maria, from the inside, had just pressed the garage door. And as the mechanical door was closing, Ramirez silently slid beneath. Maria was turning the key and the lock to the door that led inside the condo when she heard a noise behind her. 
Ramirez's hat fell when he ducked inside. And just before the garage door closed, shutting off the inside light, Maria turned her head and saw a tall figure pointing a 22 at her face. She cried, No, God, please don't, no! And as she lifted her hand that still held her car keys up to her face, in the complete darkness, the invader fired. Maria slumped to the floor in the darkness. The pain to her hand was ferocious. She pretended to be dead. Those keys in her hand, incredibly, had saved her life. That bullet had ricocheted off those keys, and Ramirez, believing Maria was dead, pushed her body aside and walked through the door. Maria's roommate, Dale, was in the kitchen. She'd heard the gunshot blast. She was shocked when she saw the towering gaunt figure dressed in black. On instinct, Dale ducked behind the kitchen counter. According to Detective Carrillo, a twisted game of cat and mouse began. Our first murder victim in modern, in March 17 of 85, uh, Dale Okazaki, we found at autopsy that she had a contusion in the back of her head. He hit her in the back of her head. Why didn't he kill her? Hit her in the back of the head, knocked her down. She then went on the ground and he waited on the other side of a counter. She got down the ground, she waited a few minutes, it was silent. So she got up, put her hands on top of the countertop, just like this. And when she did it, she picked her head up. And when she picked her head up, he was on the other side of the counter with a gun pointed right at her forehead. And then he shot her. He could have killed her when she was down on the ground. He could have killed her when he came up behind her. He didn't. He wanted to see that fear. Richard Ramirez fled the condo after murdering Dale. When he was outside, he was taken aback. He saw Maria, alive. For him, it was like a deja vu. Why wasn't she dead? But for Maria, who had fled the garage just moments before, she begged him again not to shoot her. He pointed the gun at her for the second time that night, but he didn't pull the trigger. He jumped back into his stolen car and was off. Miraculously, Maria would survive an encounter with Richard Ramirez, but another woman wouldn't be so lucky. Ramirez was back on the freeway, ready to kill again. It didn't take long for him to spot 30-year-old Veronica Yu, a total stranger who had caught his eye. When Veronica got off the freeway, she was headed for home. It wasn't long before she realized she was being followed. Her first thought was to flag down a police officer, but as she drove, she realized it could take a while, so she decided to pull over. Ramirez passed her. He was cursing her, but then he looked in his rearview mirror and realized that she had started following him. He stopped at a red light. He jumped out of the car. Veronica looked him in the eyes and said, Why are you following me? Ramirez told her that he thought he knew her. Veronica wasn't buying it. She called him out. You're lying, and said she was going to call the police. In an instant, Ramirez grabbed Veronica by the shoulders. Her car door was locked, and so he attempted to pull her out through the car window. Veronica screamed and struggled. She wrenched herself out of his grip. Ramirez hurtled over the car to the passenger side. He saw that the door was unlocked. It was all happening so fast, but Veronica realized the gist of what he was trying to do. But it was too late. He'd already slid in beside her. There, he shot her in the side. Veronica managed to get out of the car, but then he shot her in the back. She was only able to make it a few more steps before falling to the ground, where she begged for help. She was bleeding out on the road. Ramirez stood over her laughing, and as he walked away, he called her a bitch. He drove away in his stolen car. He didn't feel remorse or shame or worry. He felt alive with purpose. 
He believed he was doing Satan's great work. He had anointed himself as a soldier of Satan. That made him invincible. Murder was now his drug of choice. Detective Gil Carrillo was 34 years old, the youngest homicide detective in the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. At the time, he was 6'4 and 280 pounds. Carrillo had three children with his wife, Pearl, and Detective Carrillo was next up in the aftermath of the Hernandez-Okazaki shootings. March the 17th, 10.40 at night, they called me up. I was at home in bed, and they said, uh, you have a murder, 8510 Village Lane, City of Rosemead. One deceased, one wounded. It's okay. Just another day at work. Went to work. Veronica Yu's murder was being handled by another jurisdiction. Because then the next murder that happened, Veronica Yu... Um, yes. March. Though that was the same. So were the other detectives assigned that case? When did you start? That was in. That was another city. That was another jurisdiction. That was in the city of Monterey Park. Oh. So they handled their own murders. Oh gosh, that makes it so complicated. Did you run into oh, those problems? With... It was a complicated, difficult case to work. Trust me. No, I believe you. Yes. Detective Carrillo had spent hours investigating the condo when he received a request to speak with Maria's mother who'd asked to come inside to get some of her daughter's belongings. At the time, Maria was at the hospital getting surgery on her hand. I'm doing the crime scene there, and so the lights are on inside the, the apartment, the condo, and outside it's pitch dark. So people from the outside can see in, but I can't see out. And a patrol deputy walks in and he says, uh, excuse me, Gil, the mother of Maria Hernandez, that's the young lady that was in the hospital surviving, she's here, would like to talk to you. And I said, okay, ask her if she can just give me just two more minutes. Let me finish this measurement right here, and I'll go out and talk to her. And then all of a sudden, I hear, because he had left the door open, somebody say, Gilbert, is that you? And I'm sitting there saying to myself, well, I, I'm Gilbert, but nobody called me Gilbert. I'm too, I'm too cool for that. That's when I was a kid. I said, yes, this is, this is me. She says, it's me, Pauline. And I said, pumpkin? Is that you? She said, yes. And I said, my God, Maria was her daughter. My parents had baptized Maria Hernandez when she was just a baby. The last time I saw Maria, she was about six months old. Pauline got divorced from her then-husband, Johnny Hernandez, and she ended up marrying another guy, and they moved away. I never saw her again up until that night. When Detective Carrillo heard about the murder of Veronica Yu, he got to thinking. The guy he was looking for was no ordinary suspect. The second victim, 40 minutes later, he drug a lady out of a car and shot her. Why didn't he shoot her right there in the car? He loved the fear. And so Morneau would say, that's the sign of a sexual deviant. And so that's what got me going. If you'll recall in part one of The Night Stalker, Detective Carrillo explained how he had taken an advanced criminal investigation course from retired FBI agent Bob Morneau at Cal State. There, he took a deep dive into the psychological debauchery of sexual violence. Professor Morneau would explain to his class that the killer's actions are clues to his motivations. Uh, I learned from my college professor, Robert Morneau. I give him all the credit uh, that gave me the knowledge to work the Night Stalker case in particular. Best instructor I've ever had. And he taught me understanding. And in life, if you understand why people do the things they do, I understand why Richard was kidnapping little kids and why he was killing adults. I understand. I don't condone. And that's the big difference. You don't condone with what he's doing, but you don't understand. And if I understand, then it makes it a lot easier to talk to people. 
And, and what so did you understand about Richard Ramirez and why he was doing what he was doing based on this training that that you'd gotten? What what was actually he was a sexual sexually motivated individual. It was gratifying to him to have sex, and he liked seeing people in fear. If uh, and and Morneau taught us, you know, you get a gun and put it. If I put a gun right in your face, you're going to be scared to death. Well, he thrived on that. He loved seeing people in fear. It wasn't his intent to kill you. He wanted to see you scared. If you acquiesced and did whatever he said, you survived. If you put up a fight and didn't pay attention, then he would kill you. And that's the way it was. And as Gil looked around the crime scene, after talking to the surviving witness, Maria Hernandez, he had become convinced that the man who had shot her and murdered her roommate and also murdered Veronica Yu, he began to wonder if this killer was getting off sexually by the act of murdering people. Meantime, Maria helped a sketch artist put together a composite of the intruder. The image created was frightening. A gaunt face with soulless eyes, who was described as curly-haired, with bulging eyes, and wide-spaced, rotting teeth. Detective Carrillo went looking for Detective Sergeant Frank Salerno. Salerno had been the head of the Hillside Strangler Task Force in the late 70s. Detective Carrillo just knew in his bones that the two murders and an attempted third in a single day was the work of a serial murderer and rapist. Even this early on, he figured the clock was running down before another innocent person would be murdered. Detective Sergeant Frank Salerno suggested that Detective Carrillo look for other crimes, saying, quote, a man does not become a killer overnight. And he couldn't have been more right. On March 26th, Richard Ramirez would strike again in the Whittier neighborhood. He went back to the home of Vincent and Maxine Zazara. Vincent was in his 60s, he was a retired CPA, and his 44-year-old wife, Maxine, was an attorney. This was the second time that Richard Ramirez had burglarized the Zazaras. This time, he wouldn't leave them alive. He gained entry into their home through a window. Silently removing his shoes, he crept up to a sleeping Vincent on the couch and shot him in the head. He quickly ran into the bedroom where he found Maxine. The gunshot blast had roused her from her sleep. And then suddenly this intruder was beating and shouting at her. Shut up, bitch. And don't look at me. Where's the money? Where's the jewelry? Maxine kept it together, even as he tied her up. And as he tossed the room on the hunt for valuables, she was able to loosen her bindings and grab the shotgun beneath the bed. Her husband had bought it after the last burglary, saying he was going to blow away the person if he came back. Now, Maxine had her chance. She pointed the shotgun at Richard Ramirez and fired. What Maxine didn't know was that her husband, Vincent, had removed the shell casings because their grandchildren had recently come over for a visit just a few days before, and he didn't want a loaded gun in the house. Richard Ramirez flew into a rage and shot Maxine three times. He then went into the kitchen and grabbed a knife and carved an inverted cross into her chest. Before he left, he would scoop out Maxine's eyes, keeping them as trophies. He fled the Zazara home with the valuables he'd scrounged. When Richard Ramirez got back to the stolen vehicle, he was anxious to get back on the freeway. He was just two blocks away. And just to show how truly cunning he was, he'd taken the time to put a bumper sticker on the back of this stolen car that said, America, love it or leave it. He did this because he believed that police were patriotic and that they'd be less likely to pull over a car where the occupants were obviously patriotic too. 
That night, a cop would pull up behind him, not knowing that he had a shotgun between his legs, Maxine's eyes on the passenger seat inside a jewelry box, and a bag full of loot from their home. The police officer drove on by, and Richard Ramirez vanished into the darkness once again. We'll be back after a quick break. But Richard Ramirez left a clue, a shoe print, left in the Zazara's flower bed. A cast of the print would be made, and it would be later determined that it was a size 11 and a half, the brand name Avias. The Zazara's murders were being investigated by another jurisdiction, but Detective Carrillo heard about the murders and felt certain that their killer was responsible, especially when they learned that the gun used in the murders was a 22 and that Maxine's nightgown had been pulled up, leading them to believe that this was a sexually motivated crime and that her eyes had been taken. Journalist and best-selling biographer Philip Carlo would go on to write The Night Stalker, The Life and Crimes of Richard Ramirez, the true story of America's most feared serial killer. Carlo's work was extremely helpful in putting together the timeline of Richard Ramirez's crimes for this episode. And here Carlo is explaining his conversation with Ramirez about why he removed Maxine's eyes. He said that... If you take the eyes of someone, you have their soul. That, I think, was in the back of his head. But I said, what happened to that woman's eyes? And he wouldn't tell me. But I later found out that he mailed the eyes to his, his father. And the detectives assigned to the Zazara's murders didn't share Detective Carrillo's belief that these murders were all the work of one killer. Linking homicides together is a huge problem that investigators face, especially when the murders are committed in different jurisdictions. There's a term called linkage blindness, and it happens when an agency leading the investigation to catch a serial killer doesn't have access to information from other agencies. And also, the lack of communication and cooperation between jurisdictions can torpedo an investigation. I got the first murder March 17th of 85, and I wrote a search warrant on April 10th. So that's less than a month, full month later, I'm writing a search warrant where I'm uh, throwing on there for my affidavit and probable cause that I believe that he was good for two child abductions and two murders at the time. So I was already putting them together that, that early. And this was all Bob Mordeaux. And as Detective Carrillo looked into the abduction of those two girls who'd separately been sexually assaulted by a man matching the description of the killer and his breath. Remember, it was an odor victims would never forget, the smell of rotting teeth. He continued to tell his colleagues of all these crimes and that they were the work of the same guy, and they literally laughed at him. Detective Carrillo took it in stride. The only one who didn't laugh at him was Detective Sergeant Frank Salerno. He'd worked the Hillside Strangler case, so he was very familiar with serial killers. And they both went to their captain, explained their one killer theory, and thus a task force was born. When did you start? At what part in the series did you realize this is one person, even though there's all these different victim profiles and we're looking for a serial killer? I told you, I started writing. I wrote my first search warrant on the case, putting child abductions and murders together April 10th. Okay, man, that's pretty, pretty amazing, right? Lucky. 
You know, I, I don't I, think I, so. I, I could see things that others couldn't, and it was made more difficult. I was the youngest guy in the bureau, and there were those that would sit there and say I was a young Mexican trying to make a name for myself, and it wasn't true. You know, I could see things, and I knew what was I knew in my heart what was going on, and I knew in my mind. Then it was just trying to convince others. And I wasn't angry at them for not believing in me because nobody in criminal history has ever done this before. And so now all of a sudden, this young guy that hasn't been working murders as long as the old guys, you know, is trying to change the world. And, and nobody's done it since. So I, it was easy not to believe me. The detectives assigned to the task force began looking at crimes across Los Angeles County, trying to make connections, trying to catch this guy. They knew he would kill again. And they weren't wrong. On April 14th, Richard Ramirez was still reveling in his crimes. He wanted more. More death, more sexual violence, more domination, more fame. He wanted to be more infamous than any other serial killer before him. So he got to work. He stole another car and began to hunt. Everything was random, except he always chose homes that were close to the freeway. He wanted an easy getaway. And the homes he chose were always tucked in, easy for him to go lurking about, assessing where his victims were. He believed the best time to enter people's homes was between 2 and 4 a.m. On this night, he made his way to the Monterey Park neighborhood. He crept around the home of 66-year-old Bill Doy and his 56-year-old disabled wife, Lillian. He shimmied through a window and said a silent prayer. Quote, Satan, this, what I, your humble servant, am about to do, I do for you. He found Bill in a bedroom and shot him in the face. Bill begged for his life in a garbled voice, choking on blood. Ramirez responded by beating him. Lillian in the other bedroom, now wide awake but totally helpless. She was recovering from a stroke and was wheelchair-bound. Imagine her horror when she saw Richard Ramirez rushing into her room. He restrained and beat her. After, he pilfered around the house sexually charged by the power, the carnage, the blood. Soon, he was back in Lillian's room, where he raped her. He fled the house with a pillowcase full of loot. After being shot and beaten, Bill had passed out. But eventually he came to, and he crawled to his wife. Somehow, he was able to find the strength to dial 911, saying, Help! Please help me! before passing out. Bill Doy would die of his injuries at the hospital a few hours later. Lillian would survive the night. The Monterey police detectives who were called to the scene searched the Doy's property, and they found imprints of what would turn out to be a size 11 and a half Avia shoe print. Even though this wasn't his jurisdiction, a few hours later, Detective Carrillo was heading over to the Doy residence. Apparently, someone from the Monterey Park Police Department had called anonymously, saying that Gil really needed to get down to the scene as soon as possible. But when Gil arrived, he was turned away. A Monterey detective working the case told him, Thanks anyway, but we don't need your help. As a result, Gil wouldn't get access to the details of the Doi crimes until much later. The description of a tall man dressed in black with a gun and bad teeth, he wouldn't find out about the Avia shoe prints, size 11 and a half, that he left behind. On the night of May 29th, Ramirez drove a stolen car to the outskirts of Monrovia, a small town about 20 miles from Los Angeles. Inside the home lived 83-year-old Mabel Bell, or Ma Bell as she was called, and her disabled sister Florence, or Nettie, who was 81. Both Nettie and Ma Bell were sound asleep when the Night Stalker walked in through the unlocked front door. 
It was around midnight. Inside, Richard Ramirez made way to the elderly sister's bedrooms. He was pissed off again that there weren't young women for him to sexually assault, and they didn't have any high-value possessions. The Night Stalker found a hammer and viciously bludgeoned both sisters in the head. Sexually charged by the violent rampage, he went back to Nettie's room, where he sexually assaulted her. His pleasure was increased tenfold as he imagined that Satan was watching his blasphemous violence, debauchery, cruelty, and torture. Before he left, he used Ma Bell's red lipstick to draw a pentagram on the back of her thigh and on the wall behind her bed. He would go into Nettie's room and draw a similar pentagram on the wall there as well. He filled a bloody pillowcase with the sisters' valuables and took off into the night. Ramirez was totally oblivious that he'd left behind another imprint of his size 11 and a half Avia shoe prints. The print had been left in the blood of his victims. The sisters would be found two days later, barely alive. Ma Bell would pass away later from her injuries. The next night, Ramirez had come down from the high of what he'd done the night before. Killing had become his drug of choice, and he needed to hunt again. He drove to Burbank, setting his sights on the home of 42-year-old Carol Kyle. It was nearly 4 a.m. when he slid his long arm up the flap of the doggy door. Silently, he twisted the lock. He was in. Moments later, he was putting the gun to the head of the sleeping mother, who woke up to this. Wake up, bitch, and don't scream or I'll kill you. Don't make a fucking sound. Before the night was through, he would rape Carol repeatedly, but he left her and her 11-year-old son alive, cuffed to a bed. Carol was able to call 911, and when police arrived, she would say, quote, The look in his eyes was absolutely demonic. Never had I seen eyes like this on a human being. Unfortunately, the Burbank police who handled this case didn't link the rape of Carol Kyle to the tall, gaunt man dressed all in black with rotting teeth that the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Office Task Force was desperately trying to find. Meantime, word had spread in law enforcement about the crimes against Ma Bell and Nettie. Detective Carrillo rushed to the scene and he wondered if this could be the work of their serial killer. A gun wasn't used in this instance, and the pentagrams the killer had left behind made him wonder, what was the connection to Satan and devil worship? The muddy waters began to get a little clearer. Gil believed if he was right, and he knew that he was, that one man was just responsible for all of these heinous crimes. And if that were the case, it was an anomaly, because the school of thought was that serial killers stuck to the same type of victim. And if their suspect was responsible for the crimes against these two elderly women, that would mean that he was a new breed of serial killer and that anyone could be his victim. The most viable lead that they had was the size 11 and a half of Vias. They needed to track that down. How many of them had been sold in California? There was a needle in a haystack, but nothing was off the table. On July 2nd, Richard Ramirez drove another stolen car to Arcadia. He broke into the home of 75-year-old Mary Louise Cannon. Inside, he found her sound asleep, picked up a lamp, and bludgeoned her with it, before stabbing her to death using a 10-inch butcher knife he'd found in the kitchen. Three days later, Richard Ramirez made his way to Sierra Madre. He entered the home of the Bennett family, a mother, a father, and their two teenage kids. He came in through the front door, which was unlocked. 
Near the entryway, he found 16-year-old Whitney Bennett asleep in her bed. He was thrilled. Instantly, he dreamed about sexually assaulting her. But first, he knew he would need to incapacitate her to keep her quiet. So he silently crept back to his car and grabbed a tire iron. Back inside, he would use it to beat Whitney more than 20 times in the head. Then he straddled her, wrapping a telephone cord around her neck. It took him by surprise, shock really, when he saw electrical sparks and what he would describe later as Whitney's head appearing to glow in a blue haze. He believed that the girl's soul was leaving her body, but when he let loose of the cord, she gasped for air, which spooked Ramirez to the point that he fled the home immediately. As he drove away, he was convinced that Jesus Christ had intervened and saved her, and it made him nervous. It made him doubt his potency. He panicked, hoping this wasn't a sign that the power that he wielded at the hands of Satan was weakening. He was just beginning his reign of terror, and the thrill of believing that Satan was riding shotgun, approving all of his deeds, and there was no way that he was stopping. Which is why on July 7th, Richard Ramirez broke into the home of Joyce Lucille Nelson, who was 61 years old. She lived in Monterey Park, and as he had done with so many other homes before, he found a way inside and hovered over her as she slept on the couch. And then he startled her into consciousness, barking demands. And when she put up a fight, he beat her to death. So angry at her, he stomped on her face with the foot of his 11 and a half Avia sneakers so viciously that it left an imprint for investigators to find later on her face. Later that night, he would break into 63-year-old Sophie Dickman's house. She lived nearby. He handcuffed her at gunpoint. He tried to rape her but wasn't able to perform. He stole her jewelry, and when he asked if there were any other valuables, she said no, and he told her to swear on Satan that that was true. By now, word had spread that the Los Angeles County Task Force had strung together these crimes and the theory that one man was responsible. The media had picked up the story, and each new attack and murder was an ever-evolving front-page story. Richard consumed these articles, reveling in the attention of the Night Stalker. But also, he realized that the police had figured out that they were looking for one man, him who they still had yet to identify. Unbeknownst to him, their biggest lead was his shoe, size 11 and a half of Villas. And he'd left fingerprints behind at two crime scenes. By this time, the LAPD detectives, who were working the Jenny Vincow murder, reached out to Gil. Remember, Richard Ramirez had killed her in June of 1984, before Ramirez's so-called killing spree had begun. I was contacted by LAPD and they said, hey, we have a murder on June the 24th of 1984, a single isolated murder, and we have fingerprints and we'd like to collaborate with you. And I said, well, just hold on to your case. Once we get a guy in custody or once we possibly identify him, we'll check prints. It's the same guy, you know, we'll hammer him because they had investigated their case. We'd investigated our cases. We still didn't know who we were looking for. Once we did get Richard in custody, we matched the prints. And yes, in fact, he did. That was victim Jenny Vincow that he had murdered on June the 24th of 84. But there weren't a bunch of murders that we were aware of from them between 84 and when I got it in 85. Detective Gil Carrillo was frustrated. He knew they were on borrowed time. They had the print of the man, composite sketch, and yet they couldn't match that print to a suspect. And investigators were working around the clock. 
They knew that he wouldn't stop until he was dead or in custody. The emotional toll on Gill and his family was soul-crushing. During the case, the job was, you take care of the house and the kids, I gotta find the killer. And I was working 16, 8, my captain's quote in the paper saying, guys are working 16, 18 hours a day, seven days a week. We were. We were burning the midnight oil. I never got, I didn't get to see my wife uh, much at all. Didn't get to see the kids. I call up, check on them. And I called up one day and I asked my wife, I said, how are the kids? And she said, and she was at my mom's house at the time, my mom and dad's. And I said, how are the kids? She said, well, I caught the 13 year old, my daughter crying in the bedroom today. And I went in there and I said, well, why was she crying? So I went in there and said, you know, why are you crying? And she says, nothing. She says, no, there's a reason. Why are you crying? And she just blurred out. She was, I just want my dad back home. I wish this case were over. And I said, okay, I gotta go. I hung up the phone and it broke my heart to hear that on one side. On the other side, I started cussing and I'm saying, they're saying, what's wrong? I said, God damn it. She doesn't understand. I've got the weight of the world on my shoulders and I don't need more problems like this. Hold on to it, grab it, run with it. Don't tell me about this stuff right now. I wouldn't care if the house floated away. I'm a man on a mission because not only are the residents of Los Angeles County at risk, my family's at risk. Emboldened even more by the news media, Richard began planning his most brutal attack yet in the name of Satan. During his next burglary, he planned to behead his victims and leave their heads on the front yard. On July 20th, he bought a machete and a police scanner. Then he stole a car and drove to Glendale, and he randomly chose the home of Layla and Maxon Needing, a couple in their 60s. Before entering their home, he made a silent prayer to Satan, saying, By all that is evil, I, your humble servant, invoke Satan to be here and accept this offering. After that, Richard Ramirez proceeded down the hall. He burst into the sleeping couple's bedroom and commenced hacking them as they lay vulnerable in their bed. He found out that the machete wasn't sharp enough to behead them, so he delivered kill shots to the head from his twenty-two caliber handgun. And afterward, he continued to hack at their bodies, until he heard on his police scanner that cops were on the way, and so he fled. But Richard Ramirez wasn't done for the night. He drove to Sun Valley, again randomly choosing the home of Chainerong and Somkid Kovanoth, it was just after 4 a.m. Once inside their home, he woke up Sam Kid, who was asleep on the sofa. He told her not to make a sound, or he would kill her and her children. He found Chainarong asleep in bed and shot him in the head. After, he raped and beat Sam Kid until dawn. He drug her around the house, demanding the valuables, all the while making her swear to Satan that she was not hiding money from him. After months and months of working the case, Detective Carrillo finally got a break. A lead on the Avia shoes. They were looking for just one pair in Los Angeles. To that point, we'd done a study on them. And I can tell you today without equivocation, January 9th, 1985, 1,356 pair of bottle 440 Avia size 11.5 entered New York for distribution throughout the United States, of which six pair ended up in the state of California, one pair ended up in Los Angeles. So... That was an important piece of evidence. The public was now fully aware that a serial killer was on the loose. Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. People were buying guns, guard dogs, home alarm systems, and barred their windows and deadbolted their doors. People went to bed wide awake and worried. 
A gun salesman would say, quote, I had wall-to-wall people up to the ceiling wanting guns for protection. Never saw anything like it. On August 6th, Richard Ramirez drove to Northridge. There, he broke into the home of Chris and Virginia Peterson. But when he crept into their bedroom, things didn't go according to plan. 27-year-old Virginia was awake, and he shot her in the face. Then he shot Chris in the neck. But Chris fought back. He was strong, and he got Richard Ramirez to the ground. Richard was able to wriggle out of Chris's grip, and he got away. Both Chris and Virginia would survive their injuries. Two days later, Richard Ramirez drove a stolen car to Diamond Bar. He broke into the home of 27-year-old Sakina and her 31-year-old husband, Elias Abawath. He neutralized Elias by shooting him in the head, killing him instantly as he was sleeping in his bed. Then he beat Sakina while forcing her to reveal the locations of the family's jewelry, and then he brutally sexually assaulted and tortured her, demanding that she swear on Satan that she would not scream during his assaults. When the couple's three-year-old son entered the bedroom, Ramirez tied the child up and continued to sexually assault Sakina. After Ramirez left the home, Sakina untied her son and sent him to the neighbors for help. It was around this time that Gil would find footprint impressions outside of his own home. Remember, he was working 16 to 18 hours a day and wasn't home much. And Diamond Bar was really close to his house. When he hit on August 8th in Diamond Bar, certainly after that, came home and there were footprints around my house. And they were no longer the Avias, they were a different shoe. They were little concentric dots. Well, he went to Astadia, that was the shoe, and that left dots. And so I then had surveillance around my house, you know, security around my house uh, 24-7. And so, and he'll tell people in the jail that he knew where I lived. So, and Diamond Bar... My driving to Diamond Bar was about a five-minute drive. That's how close it was to where I lived. So she was afraid. The one thing I hadn't factored in was the fear factor. She was alone. She didn't have her husband who carries a gun for security around her. It was just her and the kids. She knew that he had a propensity to hit more than one location at one time, one night. And I wasn't afraid at all because I had a gun and I had partners with guns and I knew what I was doing and we were safe. And I didn't factor that in until it was all over with. You're talking about your wife didn't have a gun and she was with the kids alone. Do you know, did he confirm that he had been the one that was lurking outside your residence or? He said he knew where I lived, he'd been by. So he told jail deputies. Now he never told me that. More Murder Chronicles after the break. Even though Richard Ramirez loved the attention the Night Stalker was getting from the media and how the city was racked with fear, he started to worry. He felt like it was getting too hot in Los Angeles, and so he caught a bus to San Francisco. But he had no intention of stopping his killing spree. And on August 18th, he entered the home of Peter and Barbara Pan. He would shoot the sleeping Peter, who was 66 years old, in the temple with a 25 caliber handgun, killing him instantly. He then beat and sexually assaulted Barbara, who was 62, then shot her in the head and left her for dead. But she would survive her injuries. Before he left, Richard Ramirez used Barbara's lipstick to draw a pentagram on the bedroom wall. Underneath, he wrote the phrase, Jack the Knife. And again, at this home, he left his signature 11.5 Avia shoe print behind. Richard Ramirez was planning to kill again in San Francisco. That is, until the mayor of the city, Dianne Feinstein, revealed L.A. County Sheriff's Office's most closely guarded secret in a televised press conference. 
basically announcing to the world that the killer wore Avia shoes in the size of 11 and a half and that they were tracking down the one pair that had been sold to a customer in Los Angeles. That was an important piece of evidence. And Richard says he threw him over the Golden Gate Bridge. Needless to say, we had just flown in from San Francisco and we're just coming into the main, our Hall of Justice facility and our news media section was on the down, downstairs. And as we're walking in, they say, hey guys, come here, come and take a look at this. And so we went inside, it was on. And I was so upset, so pissed off, so down and out. We were on the eighth floor at that time. So we went up to the eighth, our office were on the eighth floor, went up the eighth floor, went down, started doing work. And I just told Frank, I said, screw this place. Let's go. May as well go fishing right now. She put that shit out there and, and I was beside myself. So we went down, our office was just a couple of blocks away from Chinatown. So we went into Chinatown, went to a local bar and started drinking and our captain was in there. And we're telling our captain, you gotta get to the sheriff. He's got to say something to try and stop these people, politicians from saying shit. So he left and about 30 minutes later, he called us up and he says, okay, you guys stop drinking, have some dinner and be back up here in an hour. And so we went back to the office. They flew the sheriff in and he wanted to come in and he held a press conference where he said that asked all politicians to stay out of our murder case. On August 24th, Richard had taken a bus back to Los Angeles. And that night, he stole a car and drove to Mission Viejo. As was his usual practice, he drove up and down the neighborhoods looking for the perfect house that he felt comfortable hitting. He settled on the home of 29-year-old Bill Carnes and his fiancée, 27-year-old Carol Smith. He found the couple sleeping in their bed, and Bill awoke to the sound of a handgun being cocked next to his ear. Ramirez then shot him three times in the head. After that, he was on Carol, telling her that he was the night stalker, forcing her to swear she loved Satan as he beat her with his fists and sexually assaulted her. Before leaving, he told her, tell them the night stalker was here. He did that when he went down to Mission Viejo. He did it once. Tell him it was me. Tell him the Night Stalker. Then we knew what paper he was reading because the different papers and the news outlets, television, were calling him different names. The Midnight Intruder. They, they had all kinds of stuff, and they would call me, and if they'd catch us, they'd say, do you have a name for him? And I'd say, yes, I do. Okay, what is it? And I'd say, suspect. And we never had a trick name for him. He was just a suspect. The examiner, the Herald Examiner and the Times were the big paper back then. Herald Examiner called him the uh, Night Stalker and he liked it. So he said, tell them I was here. Tell them it was the Night Stalker. Bill Carnes would survive his injuries that night. But later he would tell reporter Mike Watkiss that the night of the attack ruined his life. What he did to me has been the total destruction of my life and my girlfriend's life. Former computer engineer Bill Carnes, one of Ramirez's many victims. One night, Carnes and his girlfriend were assaulted in their bed. The woman was raped and Bill Carnes shot three times in the head. Bill Carnes ended up in a group home with a bullet still lodged in his brain. He stole my memory, he took my girlfriend, he took my career. And this was just an un, uh, unprovoked attack. The stolen vehicle that Richard Ramirez had used that night was found abandoned in Los Angeles four days after the attack on Bill Carnes and his fiancée, Carol Smith. Investigators knew that the Night Stalker had used this vehicle, and they were able to find a single fingerprint. 
Detective Carrillo says they were finally able to positively identify the print as belonging to Richard Ramirez, a 25-year-old drifter from Texas. Fingerprint experts looked through millions of prints to finally match it with Richard Ramirez's. And they also had the help of Alejandro, a guy who used to rob with Richard Ramirez. At one point in time, we were looking for an informant, Alejandro Espinoza. Alejandro Espinoza was the informant that finally positively ID'd him for us on, a, on that Friday, August 30th. And uh, Alejandro would come forward and we were using him. Alejandro helped us out immensely. The week before Richard's arrest, we had no idea who we were looking for. We knew we were getting close, but we had no idea who he was. We didn't think that we had a shot at him until Wednesday or Thursday. And then we got word uh, from up north, up in San Francisco, they put a last name with a first name. And so then we had up in San Sacramento, we had them hand search. You hand search the files for fingerprints on a Richard Ramirez. They found eight of them and they found one that matched fingerprints with that Orange County had found on a stolen car. And that was him. We got his picture, showed it to Alejandro and Alejandro said, that's him. Where did so how Alejandro run into him? How did, what was that connection? He used, to, he used to be a burglar. He used to caper with Richard before Richard started killing. On August 29th, law enforcement officials released a mugshot of Richard Ramirez from a 1984 arrest for auto theft. At long last, the Night Stalker was exposed in the light of day. During this police press conference, they announced, We know who you are now, and soon everyone else will. There will be no place you can hide. So, we said thank you very much. We went, started printing off thousands of those pictures, tried to get them in every cop in L.A. County right away, put it out on the news media, and it was, that started it. On August 30th, Richard Ramirez was totally unaware that his picture had been blasted out in the media as he boarded a Greyhound bus to Arizona. He was going to Tucson to visit his brother, and when he got there, his brother wasn't home. So early Saturday morning, August 31st, Ramirez headed back for L.A. He was on a bus when he started getting a really weird feeling that everyone was watching him. He was riding on a bus. He had been made on the bus. They saw the guy look at the paper and go, got off the bus. He saw him dial 911 or dialing the phone. He goes to uh, the next major stop. He gets off because the guy that got off then flagged down a gas company truck said, hey, follow that bus. The killer's on there. So he could see the guy. So Richard's now running, jumping through yards, jumping through fences. Richard Ramirez, the man who had terrorized a city for months, now the tide had turned. Now he was the one being hunted. Just imagine in your neighborhood, you go to get in your car and someone starts carjacking you. What are you gonna do? You start screaming, asking for yelling for help. The husband comes running out and was a good guy, grabbed a piece of pipe or a piece of metal and he comes up and he hits him in the head. Hits him in the head a couple of times. Well, the neighbors here, the yelling and the screaming, they see that the husband's engaged in some guy that doesn't belong there and it's a lady that's loose. So they then go, Richard stops what he's doing there and starts running away. Richard, to this point, has been on about a two-mile sprint. He ran across the 10 lanes of the, one of the five freeway, over the soundproof walls, through yards, through fences, you know, over fences. He's running to try and get away because he had been made 
on a bus. Everything that he did to all these people and took so much pleasure and just was so awful. The, the idea that he would be like beat down in the street like a dog. It's just that part of, of and, like. And you know, part of me wanted him, I wanted him dead, you know, kill him. But the other part of me didn't want him dead at all. I wanted to talk to him. There was so much to gain by learning from him. The residents encircled the Night Stalker, beaten and bloodied when the police came. Richard Ramirez received first aid on the scene. He had white bandages that covered his head and wrapped around his chin to stay in place. Over that was a wrap of ace bandages. He's sitting in the back seat of the police car that's surrounded by neighbors. A police officer repeatedly asks if he's been arrested before, to which Richard Ramirez lays down in the back of the hot car. He knows he's been caught. The night stalker, Richard Ramirez, had finally been caught. We're happy to announce that the individual we have in custody is Richard Ramirez, the night stalker. I can't begin to tell you how proud we, all of us, are of the people in this community who, uh, to a man and a woman, were involved in, in trying to track this guy down and capture him. That night, there was dancing in the streets of the East L.A. neighborhood where Ramirez was caught. When they finally apprehended the Night Stalker, Detective Carrillo would describe Richard Ramirez as very intelligent and well-read. He was self-taught, and many of the books he read were about serial killers. He said, Carrillo Salerno, he knew exactly who we were, and he calls me Gil, he called my partner Mr. Salerno. And I said, hey, Rich, what's up with this? You know, I'm Gil, but this is Mr. Salerno? What'd you think, he was seven feet tall and hovered? I said, shit, he puts on his pants just like you and I, one leg at a time. Mm -hmm. He says, no, that's Mr. Salerno, Gil. He worked on the Hillside Strangler. Remember, I told you, he's well-read. He told, he told me, I got an ego that'll fill this room. And I can tell you everything about serial killers from the time the Romans fed the Christians to the lions, the modern day serial killer. So he knew all about Frank Salerno. And he was so excited because we put him in a cell in jail. And Frank says, hey, Rich, you know what? That's for Kenneth Bianchi, uh, Angelo Bono, one of the hillside strangers that you're the same cell he was using. And he got excited. He thought that was totally cool. So he was happy to be a serial killer. That yes. was a goal of his. Yes. Yeah. And, and he didn't want to be known as a crazy the judge ordered him for a psychiatric evaluation that lasted 30 minutes before he threw the doctor out. Get out of here. I don't want to talk to you. He did not want to be known. He wanted everybody to know he did it. He was good, and he was good as his craft. Richard Ramirez's trial began in 1989, and cameras were allowed in the courtroom. They captured the horrific testimony of survivors and the details of what he'd done to the murder victims. But it also gave Ramirez the opportunity to play to his fans. By then, he had developed a cult-like following of Satanists. In front of the camera, Ramirez would flash a pentagram that he'd drawn on his hand and shouted, Hail Satan. 
He would also curse at the judge, who tried to keep the proceedings on track, despite massive media attention and groupies vying for a serial murderer. Like Ted Bundy, Ramirez had attracted the attention of a lot of women who regularly attended the trial, sent him love letters that confessed they wished he would have broken into their homes. The sexual interest and attraction to those who commit crimes is called hybristophilia, and it's mostly women who experience this sexual disorder. The woman believes that she can tame this violent man and that they'd never be violent toward them. At the trial's end, Ramirez was found guilty of all charges against him, 13 murders, 5 attempted murders, 11 sexual assaults, and 14 burglaries. Ramirez was sentenced to death many times over, and his response to the press was, quote, Big deal. Death always went with the territory. See you in Disneyland. Ramirez never expressed remorse, but according to Detective Carrillo, he did admit to his crimes. After spending nearly a quarter of a century on death row in San Quentin, Richard Ramirez died at the age of 53. Channel 4 News. Condemned murder Richard Ramirez has died. Ramirez, known as the Night Stalker, put fear and terror into California residents in the 1980s. He died of liver failure while he was on death row. Even after all these years, Richard Ramirez's cult of personality continues to live on. A uh, social psychologist from Argentina, who's originally from here but now resides in Argentina, and she says there's a move afoot right now to say that we lied about everything. We lied so much and the court was... It was not done right. There were so many mistakes and on and on. So they're trying to say that we screwed everything up and that my partner and I lied in order to get him arrested and get him to the courts, which was totally absurd. You know, the physical evidence to show and everything is documented, but it, that's just, and I understand that it started as a 15-year-old kid started this move because there are still people out there that look up to Richard and think that I should be dead and he should be alive. But they've got too much time on their hands. You know, it doesn't bother me. I said, what do you think? I said, well, it doesn't bother me. I don't care. I know what is, and I'm happy, and I had a job. I've worked. I'm retired. I'm making money, so I don't care. There, there's I no mean, way I'm going to convince those people. I mean, you've got some mental fortitude there to not let that bother you. That would really... I, okay, now remember what I said about understanding and condoning. Yeah. I don't condone his actions. I understand. He's a 15-year-old kid. He puts this shit out there. Then he's got followers that pay attention to him. They're, yeah, yeah, yeah. They get excited about this. So now he's a leader. Now he's got power. Now he's got more people. And through social media, it gets bigger and bigger. And he's the one that started it. So he's feeding off it. I understand. He enjoys it. Doesn't bother me, though. You know, I, I, I know I am what I am. I don't have to prove it to anybody. In Detective Carrillo's long career, I'm sure that finding the Night Stalker was a huge moment in his career. But it feels like, when looking back, he is most proud of the work he's done to honor his mentor and to pay forward what was given to him when he was a young 17-year-old on a wrong path who needed a mentor. Wait a minute, I want to read something. What I just told you and told you how emotional I got thinking of that guy. Yeah. I received, I get tons of messages. So I received one last week and I can't remember who these people are. So I had to thumb back to the beginning of the, when I first met the guy on this social media stuff and I came across a message that he sent me. I immediately read it to the wife and she started crying. It says, I remember you, my name is Gilbert, but you always called me Gil. I grew up in the Lote Maravilla area, which is a heavy gang area. So I grew up in the Lote Maravilla area. I lived with my grandparents on Dangler Avenue. 
went to Brooklyn Avenue's Griffith Junior High, then Garfield High School. You always told me, Gil, don't join the gang. It's not worth it. My brother was three years older than me. He was in Lotte. I'm glad I listened to you. In 1982, when I was 17, my 20-year-old brother was killed next to the King Taco on Ford Boulevard. Fast forward 40 years, I live in Diamond Bar, married with two kids. Thanks, Gil, for always being cool and respectful. God bless you, sir. So I know I reached somebody. And if I reach one guy, my mission was accomplished. I know I've reached others because they've contacted me and told me, but I, that's all I wanted to do. So it worked out and allowed me to do what I did in life. So in life, in your career, when you had those opportunities to look at someone and think, hey, this is me, you know, 20 years ago, I'm gonna help them like I've been helped. That was that letter that you just read was the result of someone reaching back out to you and saying, hey, thanks. It worked, yes. That's yeah. awesome. It, That's uh, awesome. It, it really, it makes me feel, feel good, feel accomplished. And, and I still, uh, even though I've been retired, I still get asked to go do motivational speaking. Uh, this Friday, I'll be at a local high school talking uh, to young kids. Before I let you go, don't forget to check out our bonus content. Every week, my producer, Brandon Morgan, and I discuss the case in more detail. And as always, thanks for listening. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.